We're gathered here tonight to remember the cross of Christ. Jesus told us that we should remember his work, that we should remember his death, that we should remember his broken body, that we should remember his shed blood. The cross. When you look at the cross, what do you see? What do you see when you look at the cross? What comes to your mind? Do you see an abstract symbol? Do you see two lines intersecting one another? What, what does this symbol mean? What does the cross, what is it a symbol of? Is it a symbol of religion? Is it a symbol of a church? Is it the symbol of pain? What is the cross a symbol of? As we remember the cross, I think some of us would say the cross is a symbol of love, which is curious considering what the cross was made for. That we would think of love when we think of a cross is uh, quite, a, quite a thing. The original historical purpose for a cross it was a, a method of capital punishment. None of us here thinks of love when we think of a noose. None of us here thinks of love when we think of the electric chair or lethal injection. We think of torture and death. When you look at a cross, what do you see? I invite you tonight to look closer. Look closer. We're here to remember a man who died on that cross, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you see him on that cross, bleeding and dying, calling out to heaven in anguish? What do you see? When you look at Jesus on the cross, what do you see? Do you see a religious leader who upset the the, the Jewish establishment who, who got crossways with them and, and they, they, they rejected him as, as their Messiah. Do, do you see a religious leader when you look at Jesus on the cross? Maybe you see a political opponent of Rome, a, a revolutionary as Jesus has been called, a revolutionary that was crushed under the totalitarian dictates of the Roman Empire. Do, do you see Jesus on the cross? Do you see a victim of circumstance? Someone who is simply at the wrong place at the wrong time. What is going on on that cross as Jesus bleeds and dies? What is happening there? Is it just these things or is it something more? Christians for the last 2,000 years have borne witness to the truth, to the fact that what is happening there on that cross as Jesus bleeds and dies is something much, much more. It's something much, much more than just a, a, an everyday execution. It's something much, much more than just a religious leader that, that upset the establishment. It's something much, much more than a revolutionary who, who led a rebellion against the state. 
Christians for the last 2,000 years have declared that what happened that day outside the hills of Jerusalem was fundamentally and altogether different than every crucifixion that preceded it and every crucifixion that followed. What happened that day on that cross? And do you see it? That is the question that lays before each one of us tonight. To understand the cross, to, to see what it is that, that Christians have been declaring for the last 2,000 years, if we, we, we must understand who God is. To understand the cross, you have to understand God. Because if you don't understand God, the cross makes no sense whatsoever. You will miss what is happening there if you do not understand God. The problem for us is that for us to understand God, he must reveal himself to us. That knowledge of God only comes through revelation. And God has revealed himself to us in many different ways. The Bible tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. That very creation itself reveals to us something about our creator. God also reveals himself to us in the pages of his word, in the pages of Holy Scripture. And it is to Scripture that we turn tonight to get a glimpse of who God is. In our search of understanding what the cross means and what it's all about. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 6 tonight. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. This is the prophet Isaiah who, who was given a vision. He himself was given a revelation of who God was. And he wrote that vision down for us in Isaiah chapter 6. And it reads, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So Isaiah has this vision. He has this revelation of who God is. He sees the Lord. And it says that he sees the Lord sitting upon a throne and that he is high and exalted. He is high and lifted up and his glory, the train of his robe filled the temple. And above the Lord on his throne, there were these angels, these seraphim. And each of these angels had six wings. With two wings, they covered their face with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew. And each one of these angels called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold of the temple shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am undone. And I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is given a vision He's given a vision of who God is. 
And what we see in the pages of Scripture is that the, the primary way that God has chosen to reveal himself to us is that God is holy. God is holy. When these angels flew around the throne and they got a glimpse of who God was, they cried out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. What is it to be holy? What does it mean to be holy? What is holiness? It is one of the most difficult attributes to describe because you cannot describe it by pointing to anything or anyone else because only God is holy. To us as fallen humanity, holiness is truly a foreign idea, a foreign concept. When we think of holiness, we typically, typically think of things like purity, moral perfection. But these are secondary definitions because when the angels are worshiping God in heaven, they are saying more than pure, pure, pure. Yes, God is pure and yes, God is morally perfect. But they are saying something more than just pure and perfect. The primary meaning of the word holy is separate, is other. We would say that something is a cut above. God's holiness separates him from the rest of creation. God is not part of creation. God stands outside of creation. God is the one who created the universe, created the world, spoke the worlds into existence. But God's holiness is not just separateness. It's also the direction of that separateness, which is high and exalted, which is transcendent, above and beyond what we can imagine, above and beyond what we can even think so far above and so far beyond us. His holiness is a description of his supreme and his absolute greatness. His all-consuming majesty, his exalted, exalted loftiness. God is infinitely above all of his creation, enthroned in the heavens. This word holy, it calls to attention all that God is and every aspect and every characteristic of God is in and of itself holy. So God who is just, his justice is perfectly holy. His righteousness is holy righteousness. His love is holy love. His wisdom is holy wisdom. Moses who who God used to deliver the, the children of Israel out of Egypt. He had a very close and intimate relationship with God. And, and Moses asked to see God's face. And God told Moses, my, my face, my glory, it is so blindingly holy that for sinful humanity to gaze upon me with your natural eyes, you would be completely and totally obliterated. You would not survive. That is how blindingly glorious God's holiness is. God is perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly righteous. 
And we, as Isaiah found out on that afternoon as he was worshiping God in the temple, we are not. We are not. In fact, we are the complete opposite of holy. The Bible declares to us that we are sinners. We are lawbreakers. Though God has revealed himself to us and given us his law and given us his word, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have chosen to rebel against God, declaring ourselves to be separate, declaring ourselves to be autonomous, declaring in ourselves in our rebellion to be holy. We have committed idolatry of self. And in our rebellion against God and against his word and refusing to live under him and his rule and his reign, all of us have declared ourselves to be enemies of Almighty God. Now this is a problem for us as sinners because the Bible tells us that God hates sin. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19 says that there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination unto him. Proud eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. These are things that God, the scripture declares to us, hates. All of us are compromised. All of us are guilty. All of us stand be condemned before a righteous and holy God. And what that means is that all of us are worthy and have earned God's wrath. This is a real problem. This is the problem of human existence. This is the true existential crisis. We rebellious sinners will one day stand before a holy God. You might be tempted to think, well, I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good person. Have you ever had pride? Have you ever told a lie? If you think you're a pretty good person, when you make statements like that, it only reveals just how blinded you are to your sinful condition and the holiness of God. Isaiah, by all accounts, was a very decent human being. He was morally upright. He was not a pagan, but a follower of God. He loved God. He was devoted to the Lord. In fact, he was in the temple worshiping God when he had this revelation of God. Yet... This upright, decent human being, a pretty good guy, when presenting with the blinding light of God's holiness, Isaiah, a man who we would all consider to be pretty good, says, I am undone. To be undone means that everything you thought you knew has been obliterated in the presence of the holiness of God. He says, I am wrecked. My soul is coming apart at the seams. And why? He says, because I am a sinner. 
because I am lost, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I have seen the Lord of hosts. It's no coincidence that the man who saw this vision was the same Isaiah who wrote these words, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags to God. Because God is holy, he cannot even be in the presence of sin. The Bible tells us that our sin against God separates us from God because God Almighty hates sin. Words would fail to describe how intensely God burns with righteous and holy anger against sin and sinners. God is not amused by sin. God does not think that sin is cute or funny or charming. God is not simply miffed or rubbed the wrong way. Through sin, we have declared war on our creator, holy God. Now, all of us, the Bible says, are image bearers of God. We've been created in the image of God. And so because we're created in the image of God, we can understand God's feeling against sin to a certain degree because we ourselves have righteous anger against injustice. We ourselves, when we see the, the pictures of the, the injustices that are happening in the world, we ourselves too share a similar response to God. We ourselves, when we hear the story of the child abuser and the wife beater and the pedophile and the rapist and the murderer, we too have anger in our hearts. Why? Because we are created in the image of God. Yet the wrath of God, the anger of God, is not simply reserved for those categories of what we would call big sins. Because God is not morally compromised like we are, God's wrath burns against all sin, even the little sins, things that we would consider to be not that big of a deal, lying and cheating and maybe stealing a little bit here. It may be difficult for us to comprehend, but even as we think about God's wrath against sin and as we, we in ourselves, we, we bristle against that idea that God would burn against sin such as lying or, or cheating or things that we would call secondary, it just shows us how compromised we truly are, how sinful we really are, and just how high and holy God is. The Bible declares to us that because of sin, and all have sinned, that humanity is lost. Without Christ, humanity is blind, dead, damned, doomed, and destined for the eternal conscious torments of hell, of which Jesus said the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. Dead in sin, we can do nothing in and of ourselves to fix or improve our condition. Without God working in our hearts, we are totally unable and unwilling to turn to God. Without God intervening, we are helpless and we are hopeless. Amen. And yet, 
And yet, God declares to us in his word that he is a God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That he keeps steadfast love to thousands. That God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. But it says that he will by no means clear the guilty. And that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so we might read that passage and say, how can this be? How can it be that God is both loving and just? How can God forgive sin but not pardon the guilty sinner? This was the great mystery that was concealed within the Old Testament, but that was revealed through Christ and the cross. God revealed himself in the Old Testament as both compassionate and slow to anger, yet also as holy and just and righteous. How can a holy God enter into fellowship with sinful humanity without compromising his holiness? The solution to this problem is only found in one place. The solution to this problem is only found in one place. It is not found in secular humanism. It is not found in Hinduism. It is not found in Buddhism. It is not found in Islam. It is not found in atheism. The solution to this problem is only found in one place. The cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross, God himself pays our debts. It's at the cross where God does not overlook sin. He does not ignore sin. He does not sweep sin under the rug and pretend it doesn't exist. On the contrary, the exact opposite is true. It is at the cross that God entered into human history as the man Jesus Christ and bears our burdens, takes our sin upon himself, and Jesus pays our penalty. 1 Peter 2.14 says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8 says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, Jesus existing in all eternity along with the Father in perfect relationship, did not count equality, exalted glory, a thing to be held on to, a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even 
death on a cross. Jesus didn't die just any death. Jesus didn't just pass peacefully one night in his sleep. In fact, Jesus, who had never sinned, would have never died because death is a result of sin. Jesus didn't just die any death. He didn't just come to die any death. He came to die the death on the cross. The gospel accounts tell us about this death. It tells us that before Pilate, the Roman governor, ever sent Jesus to the cross, it tells us that he had him scourged, scourged. These are things that we in our modern day are not familiar with at all. You see, Pilate, the Roman governor, as he examined Jesus, as Jesus was brought forward to him on trial, put on trial for saying things like, I am God in the flesh. As Jesus is put in front of Pilate, the Roman governor, Pilate examines Jesus and says, I find no fault in him. Pilate desired to let Jesus go, but the religious leaders stirred the crowds up and started a violent mob. They were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate thought that he could, he could satisfy, he could satiate the bloodlust of the crowd by simply having Jesus scourged. Scourging itself was such a brutal punishment that many people died from it without ever making it to the cross. Scourging was called the halfway death. Jesus, to be scourged, was stripped naked, his hands tied above his head to a post. The instrument of the scourging was called a cat of nine tails. This was a nine-tailed whip, a whip with nine shards of strands of leather. leather. At the end of each leather shard, uh, uh, strand of leather was shards of metal, broken glass, and human bones. Also attached to this cat of nine tails were nine metal balls that would beat and tenderize the flesh and muscle. This was a tool, a tool of pure and unbridled torture. To be scourged meant that 39 lashes with this instrument were inflicted upon the victim. It would start at the top of the person's neck and back and they would rip down violently, ripping skin and muscle and bone. By the time they were done with these 39 lashes, there would be no skin left upon the victim's back. Their vertebrae would be completely exposed. Their nervous system laid bare.
Jesus, before he went to the cross, was scourged. There lays the king of the world in a pool of his own blood, beaten beyond all recognition. Isaiah 52, 14 says that his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. Isaiah records for us that Jesus didn't even look human after they punished him. As Pilate then wanted to present Jesus to the crowd, he put a crown of thorns on his head, mocking that Jesus was the King of kings and Lord of lords. He arrayed Christ in a purple robe, and he presented Jesus to the crowds, and he said, Behold the man. The crowd shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him, which is, astonishing, is, is an astonishing turn of events because just five days earlier, the same crowds had shouted, had shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, when Jesus had entered into Jerusalem. Just five days earlier, these same voices, these same crowds, this same people had called Jesus their king had called Jesus their Savior and their Messiah, but now they are a violent mob who has turned on him completely. And they are now shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate asks them, should I crucify your king? To which the crowds respond, we have no king but Caesar. Pilate washes his hands of the whole thing, signifying that his blood was on them, and they gladly accepted and said, his blood be on us and our children. And after all of this, the Bible says that they crucified him. They crucified him. The gospel writers, they, they give no detail about what a crucifixion entailed. You won't find that information in the Bible for one simple reason, that at the time that the gospel writers wrote their eyewitness accounts, everyone there at that time knew what a crucifixion was. Everyone who would ever read that account who was alive, they, had, they not only knew what a crucifixion was, they likely had witnessed them themselves with their own eyes. They needed no explanation of what a crucifixion was. And so we, to know about crucifixion, we look to external historical records outside of the Bible. These records tell us that the cross, crucifixion, this method of death, was reserved for only the most despised of people. It was the most painful method of execution and it was reserved for those who Rome deemed as blights on society, terrorists, murderers, rapists, child abusers. The pain of crucifixion is so horrendous that a word was invented to explain it. Excruciating, the word excruciating literally means the pain of crucifixion, the pain of the cross. 
Now, you might be tempted to think that the pain of crucifixion was the nails in the hands and feet, but that would be false. That's not true. That's actually not where the majority of the pain comes from, if you can believe that. The majority of the pain comes from crucifixion and the fact that it is a prolonged and agonizing death by asphyxiation. It's death by, by not being able to breathe. Because of the, the, the way that you would hang on the cross, your lungs would struggle, would labor to breathe under the weight of your own body. Crucified people could hang on the cross for anywhere from three to four hours, as is the case of Jesus, because he was so violently tortured before he went to the cross. To those who went to the cross without being scourged, they could hang on the cross for as long as nine days, passing in and out of consciousness as they labored to breathe under the weight of their body. The reason that nails were driven through your hands and your feet was so that you could lift yourself up and fill your lungs with air, your back scraping against the rugged beam of the cross. Now to, to add insult to injury, crucifixions were not done in private. They were not done behind closed doors. They were done in public at high traffic areas so that people who passed by could look on those and mock them, spit on them, insult them, and curse them to add to their misery. Crucifixions were done, historical records tell us that crucifixions were done on busy roads, on busy highways, and they were performed at eye level. The crosses weren't high up on a hill. In fact, they were done on a busy road at eye level so that people could look those who were being murdered in the eye and mock them to their face. Many times, victims of crucifixion were not given proper burial. Their bodies would hang on the cross for days as birds would come and pick apart the dead and dogs would chew the bones that fell to the ground. The ancient historian Josephus calls crucifixion the most wretched of deaths. Jesus couldn't even carry his own cross, make the one mile trek because he was so wounded from the scourging. He had to receive help. Upon entering the crucifixion site, Jesus was stripped naked again from the robe. He was mocked. His mom was there. Seven-inch metal spikes were driven through his hands and his feet so that he could push himself up to breathe. And here hangs naked. The ultimate act of shame. The perfect and sinless son of God. As victims would labor to breathe, their own bodies would go into shock and they would lose control over all of their bodily functions. This is a hideously grotesque scene and spectacle. And all the while, the crowds mocked him, saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and then we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. 
if he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. This is the shame that humanity bestowed upon the son of God. And it is beyond anything that we could even imagine. Yet all of this physical pain and this suffering doesn't even begin to tell the story of the true suffering of the cross. The true horrors of the cross weren't the physical suffering. In the midst of all of this pain and agony, the worst is still yet to come. The true pain of the cross for Christ was when our sin was laid upon him. And the wrath of God was poured out upon Christ on the cross. The Bible says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we would become the righteousness of God. Jesus in the garden, as he was praying, knowing that he was going to the cross, he had prayed, let this cup pass from me. Jesus wasn't afraid of dying. Jesus wasn't afraid of being a martyr. Jesus was was looking forward to that cup, that cup which in the Old Testament represented all of human sin that had been completed, had been stored up from Adam all the way to the cross and that would be in the future all the sin of mankind. And it was the wrath of God that God was going to pour out against sin. And so Jesus prayed in the garden, let this cup pass from me. The cup was the sin of the world and God's wrath against sin. Jesus, who was holiness and purity personified, was made to drink of every act of evil and injustice. Think about the grief. Think about the the, the sorrow. Think about the pain that your sin has caused you and others. Think about in your darkest moments when you have felt that pain of sin. Now imagine every sin ever committed being laid on you in one moment. The grief, the pain, the sorrow is unimaginable. Jesus, who had never once sinned, who had never felt the pain of the separation that comes from sin between God the Father, had the sin of the world laid upon him. Every act of murder and rage and pride and unbelief and sexual perversion and filth and every lustful intent of the human heart on Christ in that moment. And then God's holy anger and wrath for that sin poured out on Jesus. This is why Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the darkest and the most depraved moment in all of human history. And yet we call today Good Friday. We call today Good Friday. How is this possible? What makes this good? There's only one thing that makes any of this good. It's that Jesus took our place. 
What makes this good is that he took on him what we deserved. That's why today is Good Friday. Because he took our place. That which we rightfully earned and deserve, Jesus took upon himself on the cross. It was not Jesus who deserved the cross. It was me who deserved the cross. It was you who deserved the cross. But he took our place. And the Bible says that this is love. That this is the purest, most concentrated, most beautiful act of love in all of history. 1 John 4.10 says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is love, bleeding and broken and beaten and dying. This is love. On the cross, Jesus, what does he begin to do? He begins to pray. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus doesn't curse, but he blesses. He doesn't condemn, but he intercedes those who even put him on the cross. Jesus doesn't demand justice. Instead, he himself receives the justice that should be demanded of us. He receives justice not for his own sin, but for our sin, for your sin and for my sin. Jesus there suspended on the cross, he hangs between heaven and earth. The God-man, our only mediator, our only bridge between God and man is Jesus Christ. There is no other way to be reconciled to God. There is no other way to be made right with God. If you think that you will make it into heaven on your own good efforts and your own good works, you are, you are greatly mistaken, dear friend. There is only one sacrifice for sin, and it is the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that hung between heaven and earth. Jesus is the bridge that reconciles us to God. Jesus is the one who draws humanity up into God himself. And so this great exchange happens on the cross. Jesus, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, sinless, never once sinned, never once lied, never once cheated, never once looked at someone with lustful intent in his heart, perfectly, righteously fulfilling God's law, living the life that we should have lived, that we haven't lived, that we've all chosen not to live. He goes there, willingly lays down his life so that his light of perfection could be exchanged for our darkness of shame. And so that now all of us who have put our faith in Christ, who have trusted in his work and not our work, who are leaning on him and his cross, the Bible says we are clothed in his righteousness. That when God sees us who have put our faith in Christ, he doesn't see wretched sinners, he sees redeemed saints, hallelujah. This is love. 
Jesus dying for the sins of his people to redeem us back to himself. Jesus choosing to go to, well, choosing to come from heaven to earth for one purpose, to die, going to the cross willingly. Now, you may be tempted at times to feel sorry for Jesus, to look down upon his suffering with pity. I want to tell you something. Jesus on that cross, if you do, you would be mistaken to do so. Jesus was not a victim. Jesus was not a victim on the cross. Do not feel sorry for Jesus. Do not pity Jesus. This is not victim, but this on the cross is victory. This is our king conquering. This is glory manifest. You pity those who suffer as a victim upon those whom calamity falls unexpectedly. But this was not Jesus. Jesus knew what awaited him before the foundation of the world. And when he came, he came to die. He came to endure the cross. He came to absorb the wrath of God. If you pity Christ as a victim, you will not understand the cross at all. You will not understand his victory that he won for us on the cross. To pity Christ is to strip him of his agency. We do not pity Christ. If we did, we would obliterate him as laying down his life as an act of service and an act of love. We do not pity Christ. We celebrate Christ. We celebrate his love. We celebrate his victory. We celebrate what he has won for us. We celebrate his sacrifice. We celebrate him our Savior, our King, our Lord, and our God. Amen. It's on the cross and through the cross where Jesus shed his blood, laid down his perfect sinless life, that he defeated sin. The Bible says the power of sin has been broken at the cross. It's through the work of the cross that Satan was defeated, that death and hell and the grave were defeated through the cross. This is why Jesus, having endured the horrors of the physical pain of the cross, having endured the horrors of the the spiritual wrath of God that was poured on him, his final words on the cross are what? It is finished. The work of Christ has accomplished for us salvation, redemption, freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from Satan, freedom from hell, freedom from the wrath of God. Though we as sinners all deserve God's wrath, a substitute has taken our place, has stood in the way, has taken it upon himself willingly. Who would do something like that? It's only one person. It's Jesus Christ. It's only Jesus He's not only the only one who would do it as the God-man, he is the only one who could do it. Who else could absorb all of God's wrath against sin except God himself, the God-man, Jesus, the Son of God? So what do you see when you look at the cross? I pray you see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
The payment, the penalty, the price for sin has been paid and paid in full. There's nothing we can do or contribute to salvation. There's no earning of this work for us. God gives this forgiveness of sin to anyone and everyone who would believe upon Christ. This is called grace. Grace. God's unmerited favor. When we repent of our sin and trust in Christ, we are declared to be new creations. Our old life of sin and shame and death is done away and we receive new eternal life in Christ. The wrath of God against sin has been satisfied by our substitute who conquered on the cross. We who have repented of sin and believe in Christ, we have, re, we have been redeemed. We have been justified. And when Christ returns, we will with him be glorified. We have been set free from the curse of the law because Jesus became a curse for us. And now Christ calls all of us to share in his death as we die to sin and live for him. Through the cross, Christ is beckon, beckoning us back to himself. God is calling you to himself tonight through the cross of Christ. And I am imploring you tonight, if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, tonight is the night to do just that. The Bible says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Stop trusting in yourself, in your own good works, in your own righteousness, which are as filthy rags, and place your trust fully and completely in the only sacrifice for sin, Jesus Christ the Lord. If you will put your faith in him and call out to him and repent of your sins, he will save you. You say, you don't understand what I've done. You don't know the things that I've been through. You're right, I, I don't, but God does. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus bled. That's why Jesus died. And that's why Jesus on that third day rose again. He rose again. So that all who would turn from themselves and turn from their sin and turn from their own righteousness and believe upon Christ could be reconciled back to a holy God. What do you see when you look at the cross?